Welcome to the fourth episode of the Product Weekend podcast, powered by Productized. This is where we meet the inspiring people behind great products. My name is Romoita, and today we have with us André Albuquerque, VP of Product at Kitsch, founder of the One Month PM, and one of the speakers of the first Product Weekend event. André has a vast and diverse experience. He worked at Google, created a course and community to help people build better products, helped grow Uniplaces from the ground up, and now he's doing the same at Kitsch. Besides being a VP of product, he is also a professor, a startup advisor, a surfer, and a father to an eight months old dog. By the end of the episode, you have a lot of books, travel, and podcast recommendations from him. I hope you enjoyed the episode and learn as much as I did. In school, what kind of student were you? A uh, pretty hard working one. Um, I don't know if it's a question of wanting good grades to validate that I was doing a good job, but it just happened. Uh, I think it was a really hardworking one. Um, okay. I, What were you studying in back in high school? Yeah. So a funny story. I've always had some way with drawing and, and designing stuff and, and painting stuff. So when I was thinking, going through that like ninth grade where you got to decide what you're going to do for the rest of your life, which is a really screwed up system because you're like 14 and they're forcing you to decide what's going to be your future career. And this isn't a time, I think this is going to change, a time where people are like sold the vision of like, this is going to be your career forever. Now you might change companies in the past. You kind of mm -hmm. stayed in the same company forever. Yeah. Uh, I think the future is going to be more like, you're going to try a lot of careers throughout your own life. So, but still till today is like ninth grade, 14 year olds. They're asking you, what do you want to do? And mm -hmm. what I were your answer to that question? Yeah. My time? answer was like, okay, I know how to draw really well. Um, I've always loved building stuff. So I got to go to architecture. That's what makes sense. So I just went into art school, arts, uh, mm -hmm. and it was, it was great because like arts people, my peers there, the whole curriculum is just, it's fun. And, and mm -hmm. I had a knack for it. So it just, it just, I had a lot of fun during high school and I had a lot of friends in science, economics, they were all suffering. And I was mm -hmm. like, I'm having a really great time. I'm going to go to architecture. So that's where I ended up going. Um, didn't work out because when they asked me, so what type of like architect do you want to be? And I said, like, I don't want to be an architect. I want to help manage architects and mm -hmm. solve their problems. Like, that's not what we do here. And I was like, <laughs> then I'm in the wrong place. So uh, that's what I'd be to management. But mm. it was a bit all of like, okay, I got to find the uh, best path to architecture mm -hmm. uh, and that made me assess my decisions through arts in high school I dropped math and I loved math so mm -hmm. I dropped because I needed to get the best grade possible to get in the best architecture school possible okay. and math was uh, statistically worse average mm -hmm. so uh, that led me to drop math uh, which was not a great decision when you drop architecture to go to management because I had to like redo all of high school's math in like three months. Um, that's what I did and then got into high school. So, uh, into business school. So okay. yeah, that's kind of my path. And w what was that, uh, that, that feeling that you had that you wanted, you preferred to manage architects and solve their problems? Uh, why do you think you, you had that? Is that a personal trait that you prefer or was it actually the drawing and the architectural 
specific work that you didn't like? Yeah, no, I think it's, it's, it's a bit of a trait. Yeah. Um, my parents were always business builders from a management perspective, but also creating businesses. Um, mm -hmm. and okay. I, so it was already, it in was ingrained a bit. And what I realized is like, as they went through their challenges, I realized like, Building a business or managing a business is about understanding what problems you have ahead of you and finding ways of solving, right? Mm -hmm. And as I was going through architecture school, um, I realized that a lot of the things you got to do as an architect is, is solving problems. Normally, it's solving problems through space and materials, but it's all about solving problems. And um, being someone who always loved business, one of the questions I always had was, Is having a, an architecture office actually a good business? Like, mm. do you actually make money out of this? Can you make money? And you start realizing you that, the, that business it's not a really great business. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, a small percentage of them actually make really good money. And I was yeah. like, why? Why? And that's all about problems, all about supply and demand. It's all about um, quality of your work. It's highly competitive. There's a lot of people. Uh, not that, There's a lot of innovation, but not at scale, like in tech, for example. So, mm -hmm. and that led me to like, okay, but there's a problem to be solved here for sure. And as I was going through, I realized that I was way more focused on this, on the business side and on yeah. the problems rather than like looking at my years going through school they loved architecture specific uh, uh design styles or uh, uh fields of the discipline where i wasn't that much into it um that's kind of okay. why i changed okay and then so after business schools one of your first professional experience was working at google which is yeah. a dream company for yeah. a lot of people how did you land a job there um i was kind of ac accidental in the fact that so majority of people that go into Google they are referred I'd say maybe 90% I don't have the exact numbers but I would say like maybe 80-90% of people that go to Google they got referred by someone who's mm -hmm. inside Google or been there um, I had I knew no one uh, I knew no one working at Google um, but I knew that going through my undergrad I loved tech mm -hmm. I loved tech but I was in business again kind of like The same way I went to arts and my friends were like killing their heads with, with science and economics. I was like, I'm in business, which is a great life. It's a great degree compared to engineering, but I love tech. And I was like going again, I'm going in the lazy path. How do I get there? So mm -hmm. I, I looked into the possibilities and I realized like Google is the best company to understand mm -hmm. tech being surrounded by the best technology in the world. So yeah. I, I got to go there. I know no one. So what do you do? You kind of apply and. Mm -hmm. I think it, that moment is pure luck. I, I would say it's pure luck. If, if 90% of people go into Google via referral and I have no referrals, therefore I only have like a one in 10 shot of getting there. Mm -hmm. There are people get there. Otherwise there wouldn't be a 0%, 10%. I didn't yeah. know this back and it was mm -hmm. after being there that I got kind of a sense of these numbers, but I realized it would be really hard. So I just applied and I think I was lucky because then. I got the first call. You applied only to Google or were you also applying to other kinds of No, I was applying to consulting companies consulting and going companies. through, um, I got to the final stages of a couple of like those big consulting companies mm -hmm. and I got the option to kind of choose going to consulting at Google. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm glad I chose Google. Yeah. Uh, I think I was a great choice. Looking back, do you think you, you would have regretted going into consulting? No, I don't think so. Um, I, I have great friends in consulting going through their tracks and mm -hmm. it's, it's a different lifestyle. 
True. You get to learn a lot. Um, I, I don't say I would regret because you can actually simulate both situations at the same time, look at the best scenario and say, oh, I, I can regret. Because you don't know. You mm-hmm. wouldn't yeah, have experience. <laughs> so you can't kind of regret. Yeah. Um, you can always say, oh, the other people that were kind of in my situation that made a different decision experienced this. Therefore, maybe statistically, that's what you would experience. So can you yeah. regret knowing this? But even so, each person is different. So I can look at my friends who did consulting. And um, some of them are really happy they did. Mm-hmm. Some of them are still there and growing into their partnerships. Uh, yeah. Others dropped it. Others are regretting having done that because now they're like i mean for sure also other people that went with this more final client option are also in the same situation some of them love it exactly everyone kind of so i i can't say like i have regretted or not yeah Mm -hmm. and what were the main learnings in that in that path at google there yeah there at google so first of all um and hindsight 2020 is easy like looking back um but learning is all about looking back. So I would say, first, the culture of a company really sets the tone, sets the attitude, sets the environment. I think mm-hmm. Google created a culture that made everyone hire the best talent possible. Like, there's a reason why a lot of people think Google is one of the best companies in the world, the hardest, one of the hardest companies to go into because the the bar of talent there is so high and that is only a possibility because culture kind of designed it that way um mm-hmm. the same way like operating inside the level and the quality the standards of operating inside google is extremely high of course there's a huge machine inside that makes it easy to operate at a very high level but anyway um i think the level of and that's all culture the culture made that execution Mm -hmm. operation and last but not least i think i i learned a lot what in my opinion great management looks like um because i think management at google is is a discipline is something that is Mm -hmm. deeply taught to those who get the opportunity to do so you can really learn and see and have references of how great thoughtful managers and how much effort they put into becoming better managers over time okay. and the the and do you think that's hard to find in other companies yes it is it is most managers are crappy most managers don't know how to manage uh, yeah. most managers are also not lucky enough to have someone helping them becoming better managers mm-hmm. um, some of them maybe are not even aware that that's something that you can learn yeah yeah no definitely they like I say, it's like they're not lucky enough to have someone that helps them become better managers. Mm-hmm. Probably because their manager is also crappy. Uh, <laughs> that's the majority of companies. And it's really hard to know what great management looks like. I had a, a former manager of mine that said once, um, you had to have tasted great foods to cook great food. Mm-hmm. And I think like if you've never been well managed, you don't have a reference what great management looks like how can you become a great manager? Like, how can you become a great manager of managers helping them become great managers, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't think anyone or m- most people do not, they're not lucky enough to have been through great management. Mm-hmm. Um, what would yeah. you say to a young person? Mm-hmm. What would be your, your advice for them to put themselves in a situation where they have a good manager that they can learn from? So, I mean, someone coming out of university, if they start mm-hmm. working right away in mm-hmm. a startup for example mm-hmm. where they're already managing something yeah they won't have a 
yeah management true. manager experience i think um there's no easy answer for that um so i think unfortunately people when they're going through a hiring process for a role mm-hmm. they're they're only in a position of being interviewed they never interview mm-hmm. back most people don't interview back well for two reasons one they're not lucky enough to be in a position where they can interview back because mm-hmm. they need a job because maybe they're applying because they need to leave their current job or maybe they don't have a job or they want to yeah. escape from their manager which is very common mm-hmm. by the way um so they don't feel they're in a position where they can interview the company and more importantly the manager that's going to manage them back and make a decision I'm excited about this manager in this position or uh I'm not excited and I shouldn't go for it, even if they want the yeah. second reason is majority of people don't know they can majority yeah. of people think going through an interview process is oh I'm going to be answering questions because I'm the one being interviewed and if I'm lucky if they give me an offer and of course if I get an offer I'm going to accept unless I have multiple offers then I'm going to accept one of them and the ones mm-hmm. I don't accept it's not because I interviewed them back and realized this makes no sense it's because, because I like the other the ones. other offer is better yeah. So I think those two reasons make a big difference. Mm-hmm. So I think realizing that, being aware of that will help you. Um now it's also not easy because um it's not like you have a menu of managers that you can just pick, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um and sometimes even as you go interviewing, you don't even know what a good manager is. So how yeah. do you know how to assess it, mm-hmm. right? Um I think it's going to be a bit more trial and error. And I think mm-hmm. A lot of people um again they might not be lucky enough to not be in this situation I'm aware mm-hmm. of that but a lot of people just accept the crappy managers they have yeah. and crappy can mean different things by the mm-hmm. way crappy can mean an abusive manager that really toxic like, or, yeah. it, it's either toxic or uh just is extremely aggressive at you mm-hmm. or demands too much for you uh from you demands from like workloads mm-hmm. um But also can be, be at the other end of the spectrum. Can be on the other end, which just doesn't care about you yeah. and it does not give you the opportunity for growth to learn, give you feedback, all of that. These are two spectrums of the same crappiness of management. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people just accept that reality and say, ah, yeah, I manage this crap, but it is what it is. They're all the same. They're not all the mm-hmm. same. Majority are. It's true. That makes you think all are the same, but yeah. it's not true. Uh, and most people don't have the luxury of saying, yeah, I'm going to quit this manager. Um, a lot of people say, I'm going to quit this company, mm-hmm. uh, rather than sometimes saying, I'm going to quit this manager. Cause quitting a manager doesn't mean you need to quit a company. Uh, yeah. most of the times might because again, bad managers also create scenarios where if you quit me as your manager, you have no place in this company, which yeah. is also terrible, but that's a whole different discussion. But a lot of people that might afford to do this should, more often say I'm going to quit this manager yeah I'm mm-hmm. going to change teams I'm going to change companies I'm going to change roles yeah. but I need someone who bets on me mm-hmm. the, going back to the mm-hmm. the part of asking um, uh, interviewing back mm-hmm. to the to the companies you're applying for I would say one of my favorite interview questions is to ask who am I going to report to and then dig deep on them like Mm-hmm. look through linkedin ask people that reported already mm-hmm. to that person mm-hmm. i'd say it's very important yeah i think sure. one key thing is being able to talk with them mm-hmm. right um I, i had a conversation with some people that asked me a similar question and they said but how do i do this right because an interview process is 
is very specific. You have this stage. You're going to talk with these people, and then we're going to ask you these questions. You might do a technical assessment or mm-hmm. a, a, an exercise, and then you're going to have a final call maybe with management or like leadership or founders, mm-hmm. and they're going to do that cultural assessment. This is very typical. Mm-hmm. Um, and when is the moment that you get to interview back? You can ask questions, but mm-hmm. it feels like very formal, like, oh, the last five minutes, you have any questions? And it's like, mm-hmm. you don't even have time to go deep. I would actually that. say that even before the first screening mm-hmm. interview, mm-hmm. ask already, like, first salary expectations and where am I reporting to? I would yeah. say those are... Those are important questions. Yeah. It is true. But mm-hmm. more than who I'm reporting to, what you want is quality time with that person to really, really go a bit deeper right yeah, yeah. deep enough i mean no one has infinite time especially mm-hmm. if you're interviewing like tens of people like imagine tens of people asking you for that time ideally you only do this by the final stages mm-hmm. um but i think that's really important and if yeah. if a company you're going through an interview process it's not giving you the the space to do that as part of the process my recommendation mm-hmm. for people is like okay go to the end then get an offer like imagine mm-hmm. you're getting an offer. The moment you get an offer, suddenly leverages it on your side because the company already signaled they want you, yeah. right? From that moment onwards, it's your show. So what you do is, okay, thank you very much for your offer, but now it's my time to interview you to mm-hmm. see if I'm going to accept. You don't need to say this. It's going to sound really cocky and arrogant. Yeah. What do you say is like, uh, thank you very much for the offer. Uh, I'd love to know a bit more specifically about the person I'm going to be reporting to, maybe mm-hmm. even my peers like who i'm going to be working most is it okay if i schedule half an hour 45 minutes in the next few days or week depending on how urgent is the offer um and then you prepare the questions and you put the hat of now i'm interviewing you Mm because i think it it really like especially in product management world where i'm coming from um it really is really positive if you if you do this um Mm -hmm. the 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 second thing a lot of people say like the answer i get after this is like oh but normally most Offers are like ticking time bombs. It's like you have 48 hours to accept. And um, if you have the luxury of having more offers or you're not like, I'm not looking. So it's like, I have the time. You don't. You can say like, no, but I need more time. If you don't want more time, just withdraw the offer if you're in a position. But let's assume you really want that. And they say 48 hours. What you say is like, okay, let me speak with these people in 48 hours. And then I can give you my answer. It's up to you. Um, then again, I'm all, I'm saying this majority of people don't have the luxury of being in this position, mm-hmm. but if you do, and you are, especially in the product engineering design world where, uh, candidates tend to have more power sometimes than mm-hmm. they think, but more power than the companies because there's yeah. a war on talent. Um, I really recommend this. I think it's a, it's a great way for you to really know this person who's going to be your manager. Your manager is the most impactful person on your career, on your learning rate, on your happiness, yeah, on your, sure. well, on everything that really dictates how good you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Great. Let me just uh, roll back to, mm-hmm. to one, actually two things that you mentioned already. Mm-hmm. One that you were a hardworking student and another one that uh, you mentioned a lazy path. Mm-hmm. How is this Ballot. So yeah, I mean, sounds paradox. Everyone right? knows that Steve Jobs famously said that they're going to he wants to hire a lazy person to do a hard job because he'll figure out an yeah. easy way to do it. Yeah. Um, did you always think of laziness uh, as a strength? Yeah, yeah, definitely. 
Um, So laziness here is not wanting to do anything and just chilling. That's not my concept of being lazy. Lazy here is around designing a strategy, right? The lazy Mm -hmm. strategy is the strategy that gets you to an outcome. It's really important that you know what the outcome is. That Mm -hmm. you can't be lazy about the outcome. Being lazy about the outcome is accepting a subpar outcome, saying this is enough because I don't want to go beyond this like i'm not lazy there by far and that is actually the opposite i'm as ambitious as one can be so if you define an outcome what you want to be is lazy on the strategy and being lazy on the strategy is defining the effortless path to get there because that's what return on investment is is Mm -hmm. having the outcome with the least amount of resources or effort so but then on the execution execution is all in that is hard work because when you design the laziest path the easiest one effortless one it also means you're focused so you're going to put all in all chips all the effort all the hard working power into that lazy path it's very likely that even on a situation where you have as much capabilities and resources as the person next to you competing for the same outcome if they don't choose an as lazy path as you they're gonna well deploy their energy and resources the same as you yeah. The likelihood of you being better at executing, faster at getting there, and even taking more value out of that outcome is mm-hmm. much higher than whoever then choose a lazier path yeah. as you. Those are great definitions. Yeah. Let's jump back, jump back again to your to your path. So um, as you were at, at Google, mm-hmm. uh, you were also part of an NGO at that time. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Was that a significant part of your path, you'd say? Look, I think um, one advice I give to every person that is younger than me, I tend to not give mm-hmm. advice to people that are older than me, unless they ask. Um, and I'm very targeted at the type of advice. I, I tend to focus my advice on my experience because I don't know anything else, right? Mm-hmm. So to people younger than me, assuming they're going to go through a path, through a career, one of the things I, I say to them is like, increase your luck surface area. There's a lot of uh, discussion around luck surface area. Uh, I think Sahil Bloom has a great tweet storm around luck surface area. There's many people who've written about this. But mm-hmm. in the end of the day, it's something like, if, if luck is random, you can mm-hmm. see luck as kind of rain, right? Rain is random. Uh, yeah. You don't know where it's going to fall. And let's assume you want to be sprinkled by the rain of luck which is random Mm -hmm. the way you optimize the probability is you increase the area yeah Yeah. Yeah. you gotta increase the bucket or yourself to be uh to increase the probability of being rained down with luck so Mm -hmm. that area which is the luck surface area uh you want to increase it the way you increase it is you expose yourself to people situations scenario scenarios challenges so all of the things where you get to learn to see to expose yourself that the next time something like that will happen in front of you that will define your ability to achieve something whether it's earning more money or getting to a specific position or convincing someone to bet on you um Mm -hmm. the probability of you being able to know how to answer that and being better than the other person because you're always competing with someone um is because you were exposed to that in the past because you increase your luck surface area Mm -hmm. so i think um my my participation with that NGO with uh, move back in the day, it's a Catholic 
business school uh, mm-hmm. initiative. Um, I think it was a bit of that. There's like I wanted yeah. to, so I'm getting I, to know. I, I want to know what this like NGO learn. world looks like. How people mm-hmm. volunteer their time into building something that makes the world a little bit better. Not just going through the capitalist path of like, yeah, we're going to do the world a bit. We're going to make the world a bit better because mm-hmm. we're going to make money out of this. I think it, capitalism is one of the best tools to make the world better um mm-hmm. i know a lot of people argue against that but history tells it differently uh, is actually mm-hmm. the best tool for that at scale um but i wanted to understand like the role of an ngo how it operates how people working here execute what mm-hmm. their drives are and i think it made a big difference for me right and after that you also had two similar experiences, at least from your linkedin page yeah. when with Cairo society yeah. in portugal and the startup scholarship yeah and yeah. What kind of opportunities these or doors did this experience open? Was there some luck rain? Oh, definitely. Falling definitely. Every single experience I had, um, it was me exp- expanding my luck surface area and all of them rained down luck. Um, mm. whether through, sorry, whether through the uh, people I met through those experiences, um, mm-hmm. whether through the challenges that I had to go, over work around them or solve them uh, all of them built up something inside of me that gave me the skills and the knowledge and experience to handle future challenges which mm-hmm. always occur uh, as i go- went through the companies i worked at uh, i think with with kairos um was understanding what world bending startups could look like because kairos back in the day uh, and I, i still think today had this goal of funding Uh, world-changing companies, not just okay. that typical app that you can easily build, really world-changing, tough challenges and looked for young people out of school trying to build companies that were world-changing. Um, and I think it led me to understand and, and see what world-changing companies looked like, the mm-hmm. how hard it was to build them, how to harness the power of networks to help one another to build them because you just, you don't build really tough industry world-changing industry companies out of a simple garage with with nothing else like it's different mm-hmm. um so i think i learned a lot through that um i think with with startup scholarship it was my first foray into building something that actually mm-hmm. had to deliver value to people um and going through all the typical challenges of like how finance works you you, you realize like okay i did business school um but You actually learn very little about building a company out of business school. You might learn about the typical processes. It's like a, it's like <laughs> the best analogy I have is like business school teaches you how to look at a piece of a puzzle and then mm-hmm. how to look at another piece of the puzzle and how to look at a lot of pieces of the puzzle. But they don't really teach you how to build a puzzle. Yeah. And they don't really teach you that a straight face of a piece of a puzzle actually means the border. And that if you collect all the straight pieces of the puzzle, you actually have the square that makes the mm-hmm. frame of the puzzle. But you know everything about each piece of the puzzle. And you kind of miss something, right? Yeah. I think business school um, teaches you that. And building my first company, which was kind of an NGO type of company, mm-hmm. uh, really taught me how the frame was. Like, So there's accounting and there's like payouts and payables and there's like processes that you got to submit and there's paperwork with the state authorities and there's like um moments in the month that you got to pay to people and there's like 
challenges that come up legal or uh or uh, i don't know there's a tax mm-hmm. etc that just yeah. come up and you gotta like oh i gotta deal with this and the bureaucracy and yeah. all of that they don't do you, teach you do you uh, consider that the boring part of i think of uh well managing a company no because and again uh, this is my own mindset it's just another problem to be solved right okay. So um, look at those as exactly so it's, like it's the, the drive problem. of solving it that uh-huh. excites me of course parts of it are boring i, I don't like have <laughs> to submit tax paperwork every single month on the company yeah. it, it just sucks but the, the 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 drive to understand the problem and understand how to do it and know you're now capable you have a new skill yeah it's beautiful because yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't know if you're going to use it in the future. It's very likely. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's more solution-driven yeah. to the problem. So then you had uh, what is still to date your biggest professional experience mm-hmm. working a, in product at Uni Places. Yeah. Um, how did you end up there? Hmm. Good question. So I think, um, so back at Catholica, uh, where I went through uh, for university. Um, so back at Catholica, a couple of friends organized a club called uh, Bet. Bet was bring entrepreneurs together. And yeah. one of the biggest initiatives at Bet, which I helped organize, was a first startup pitch. It was an elevator pitch. And mm-hmm. actually, the funny part was we actually took it to the world, which companies were pitching in the elevator they had from floor zero to floor four to hmm. pitch to the mentors as the elevator went. So, and the elevator had like 40 seconds or so. So they had to pitch a company in the elevator. I think it was a really cool concept. Nice. And um, Unipolis was the winner of the first elevator pitch um, uh, conference or, or challenge that we mm-hmm. organized. And I met the founders there um, and we started talking uh and there was a moment in time where they're like, we need to hire someone for growth, someone that understands tech, that understands marketing, that understands business, that loves startup, and that kind of accepts that, yeah, we're not going to pay you as well as maybe other companies, and there's no structure, and we need the type of profile for this. And I was that profile, and the founders kind of invited me to take on that role, a role that mm-hmm. I knew nothing about. I kind of had to figure out, and again... I realized, oh, here's a problem. I got to figure out what this role is. Let's go. That's the drive. What were the main challenges there during those five years? Basically everything, (laughs) literally. Um, A lot of challenges. I think, look, I joined really early in places. Um, We knew nothing. We knew nothing. Um, We we raised a bit of money, like Mm 200,000, which now looks like, that's you can get that out of a school competition nowadays. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe not in Portugal, but in a lot of countries where well startups um, are pretty well funded. Mm-hmm. Uh, and back in the day, it was like a really tough raise of money to, um, and it to gave us like we have so much money and so much power, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think like challenge number one is like okay, we have this amount of money. We got to find a way of making this company work that proves for those who put up this money that, yeah, you're going in the right direction. Let's give you more. Cause like, you're not going to build a sustainable business out of, um, out of, of 200k investment in tech. Uh, mm-hmm. In a lot of businesses, you can build sustainable business. But if you want to build like a unicorn, which back in the day, we didn't talk about that. Um, it's, it's all with that. Um, so that was challenge number one is like, how do we make this work? Cause we have different models. Uh, challenge number two is like, how do we hire people? Cause, uh, back mm-hmm. in the day, I was like 20, 
22 or 23, I don't remember. And all the founders were like 22, 23, and 24. They all had this age. So it's like, we have this money. Uh, we got to build this company. We're super young. We've never done this before. Every single one of us had either one work experience or none. Mm-hmm. So we got to hire people, which we don't know how to. We got to use this money in a way that delivers results and return and, and impact that we kind of don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that was challenge number two. And then challenge number three was um, how do we grow what we have? Like, how do we increase, in this case, student housing marketplace, like how do we increase the number of houses that we have? How do we increase the number of students that trust us? How do we expand more cities? Um, how do we do this? Because like, it was pretty unknown back in the day for us. And that challenge number two of hiring people, was it also hard to for people to trust you? Oh, definitely. Uh, definitely. I think... Um, This was 2013, which for a lot of people that have built companies before that, they'll feel, oh, 2013 was much easier than 2003. Mm. But 2022 is much easier than 2013. So people trusting startups, um, it was really hard. So back in the day, we would be able to hire our friends. Like Mm -hmm. we were lucky that our founders had really good networks and a great appeal and could hire talented people as their friends to trust in this company. But, um, that was it. Like we didn't have the capital to pay salaries that would convince people to, uh, drop a very established international company and join this little startup. Um, so it was, it was really hard. Yeah. Mm And for you personally, how did you learn? So um, now you have one month PM, for example, yeah. which we'll talk about in a bit. Yeah. Um, but at that time, there was not such a big hype about product or were not yeah. so, it was not so easy to access this yeah. kind of knowledge. How yeah. did you do to educate yourself on this topic? I built stuff. I, I, I have one of the first lessons I got in product management was that, um, Product management is all about common sense, right? Because you're dealing with people. And most of the time you're dealing with people in scenarios or situations where that combination of that scenario situation with that person is new, right? Mm -hmm. So dealing with that and finding a way of solving that problem there's like, no, oh, I've, I've been through this. This person with this situation, I've, I've seen this. That doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. So your ability to solve that is a bit like, okay. Let me apply common sense. Let me look at the variables. Let me look at what I know. Let me look at what I don't know. Let me look at what I can discover. And then let's together work on a solution that is the best possible solution from what I know to that specific situation. Mm -hmm. So that's what I did. And I was lucky to have a canvas to build stuff, learn. Mm -hmm. If it didn't work out, there was a environment that supported failing and learning exactly space to fail um so i was very lucky to be able to learn that way Mm -hmm. um i think number two is i understood that product is about abstracting the specific scenario yet and understanding what variables are impacting that specific situation right Mm -hmm. and if you are able to understand that then you can look at other situations content and people going through their own and abstracting their situations and understanding okay this is how this person acted or reacted or um did a b or c so and this is the result of their actions Mm -hmm. so if i abstract the variables and i apply that same b 
behavior to my situation, maybe it's going to work out the same way, even though it's a different field, a different scenario, different types of people. So I also learned that way. It's like abstracting and trying to see how does this apply to my reality? Um, when I did that, then I realized, okay, then I can read content from other sources, even if not product management. Because as you said, mm-hmm. 10 years ago or a bit less, there wasn't as much as there is today. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started reading about stuff that were patterns to my own scenarios, whether it was psychology or behavioral science, whether it was mm-hmm. project management or whether it was, um, well, architecture books, because that's a lot about building stuff, right? Uh, whether it was how to create code, build code. Um, all of those things were variables that impacted my scenario. Um, mm-hmm. It took a little bit of more work than just reading product books nowadays, which is much easier. Mm-hmm. But it gave the same result, which is me understanding what influences the ability of building software. Nice. Now you're also a teacher at mm-hmm. Catholic of yeah. product management. Yeah. Um, but it hasn't always been a, a discipline, yeah. an academic discipline. Entrepreneurship has been there for mm-hmm. a bit more time. Mm-hmm. What do you see are the main differences between these differences and common things between these two disciplines, so entrepreneurship and product management? Oh, very different. I think um, entrepreneurship is the process of building something. I'm saying something and not a company because... Mm-hmm. You can be an entrepreneur and not being, not build a company per se, uh, of building something to solve someone's problem so that they can give you value in some way, right? That's mm-hmm. the process of entrepreneurship. Yeah. Right? Product management is, it's the science and art of building and managing products, making them successful, mm-hmm. right? Um, that for me is a, necessary but still a subset part of entrepreneurship okay but at the same time you don't be, need to be entrepreneuring to do product management you can mm-hmm. do product management at companies that are not in the entrepreneurial phase they've been yeah. here they've been built they're just operating mm-hmm. so there are different things i wouldn't mm-hmm. put one one well product management is within if you're managing a product but well service management which is something not a lot of people talk is mm-hmm. also part of the entrepreneurship yeah. world but i think there are two different categories and it's true i think entrepreneurship um became more mainstream a few years ago which then became a taught discipline at the university mm-hmm. and product management is rather new yeah. um it's an old type of product management like the uh, consumer goods product management discipline back in the day which is very mm-hmm. different from um well very different it's different yeah. enough to be taught differently that's mm-hmm. more um mm-hmm. but i think it's going to get its uh time limelight uh mm-hmm. very soon product yeah. management. these two different disciplines have been present in your life mm-hmm. for long t- i mean since yeah. forever mm-hmm. <laughs> um you were and maybe still are an advisor to some startups yeah um how did you become an advisor for the first startup um I don't know. I don't remember. I think I I knew the founder, maybe. And the founder said, hey, I have some challenges. Uh, You've seen some things. Mm -hmm. Do you want to help me? Uh, Can I ask you a few questions and you can give me a few answers? And, well, in the beginning, it's like, I'm not going to charge for this. Of course, I'm going to help you because we're friends or I Mm -hmm. like what you're building or I like your mission. Or um, Then you productized it a bit. And I... Yeah, you don't. 
and then productizing it. Uh, what you do is, it's more like you play book it, right? Because mm-hmm. there's a percentage, I don't know what is the percentage, if it's like 90 or 70, but it's I think it's a majority, a percentage of every single person trying to build a product, trying to build a company, mm-hmm. uh, they're going to go through the same challenges. All of them. They're yeah. all going to go through the same challenges. And... Being Once able you've to been there, you can exactly. help the ones that haven't been there yet. Exactly. Uh, but you can only help when they go through that because that's when it becomes important for them. That's when they get they face the situation and that's when your advice is the most effective because ideally you've been through that or you talked with enough people that's been through that to create a sort of a playbook, a way you'd tackle it. And mm-hmm. then when the person is facing that specific situation, you say, okay, in my experience, I, this happened to me. This is how I reacted. This is was the result. I talked with these people. I learned from them. This is what they did. This is what happened to them. Now, mm-hmm. all of these situations are different than yours because different people, different industries, different companies, different moments. Mm-hmm. Um, all I can do is give you the inputs. Now you consume and you take out an output, which is your solution or your decision. Yeah. Um, and that, if you apply that to a lot of situations, you get a playbook. And advisory, good advisory follows a playbook, right? Because Mm -hmm. if it doesn't, you'll end up being prescriptive, saying you should do this. And no advisory, no advisor, no person giving advice should say you should do this. They should always create a map of options, of uh, possible paths that then Mm -hmm. you as a founder or you as an operator should consume it, use your own coins Mm -hmm. and see what is the best model for you. And you make the decision. Because if you don't, probably that advisor has not thought through the problem as deep as you. So mm-hmm. they're saying things that lacks a lot of understanding yeah. and time. And number two, they're not going to be accountable. You're going to be accountable. Yeah. And then yeah. if you go through what that advisor is saying and it goes wrong, well, you're going to be frustrated because said, but he or she said that, not me, but you're responsible. I'm not accountable unless yeah. I have skin yeah. in the game and I'm an investor, but that's different. Mm-hmm. But even with mm-hmm. that, like I might be investor in many more and I'm accepting that some will fail. So how much skin in the game do I really have? Yeah. But still, um, mm-hmm. and I think it started this way. I don't know. Yeah. And that you, you mentioned before that common sense is a mm-hmm. the key thing mm-hmm. in, in product management. Uh, some people that ask for your advice, don't they try to get some of your common sense to solve their problems? Oh, they get yes. it. They get it. Mm-hmm. Because my application of common sense starts with, okay, let's ask the key questions. Like, what matters? What variables mm-hmm. matter? What have we learned? What do we know? What we don't know? What do we know that we don't know? Mm-hmm. Right? All of these questions are okay, my... So you're, you're there more to ask the right questions. Exactly. I'm, I'm there more sense. to make you see what questions you should be asking and what is my thought process, my mental model for tackling mm-hmm. a problem, right? right. I usually start, anytime I, I give advice to anyone, I usually start with, look, I'm not an expert in your company or in your product or in your problem. You are. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I'm going to try to do is guide you through my own process of exploring my own problems. And yeah. then I ask you to abstract it, as I did, as I said before, mm-hmm. yeah, and then apply sure. the variables of your situation and right. see if the outputs are options for you. Mm-hmm. And then you make the decisions because you're accountable. I'm just helping. Yeah. Um, right. right. Let's jump to the current part of your of your professional path now mm-hmm. at Kitsch. Yeah. Um, what exactly is Kitsch all about? So Kitsch is a food tech startup. 
uh, with a mission to make every single restaurant amazing at delivery their own way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we started Kitch, so Hui and Uno, their former Uber uh, mm-hmm. people, that realized that in the food industry, delivery was a bit like cloud for the tech industry, right? It's okay. something that's inevitable. Mm-hmm. And looking at delivery, this was 2019. It wasn't easy for everyone to just... Before there were signs of a pandemic oh, coming? way before, way before. Well, I'll touch on that, okay. way before. Um, and they realized that uh, every single restaurant would eventually end up in delivery. Because they were managing, Hui was managing Uber Eats for mm-hmm. Europe, Southern Europe. Um, and they realized it wasn't easy to go into delivery. Uh, so they said, I think there's an opportunity here. I think the next few years, like five, ten years maybe, we're going to see a lot more restaurants joining delivery. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they came to me and challenged me, look, you want to join the founding team to help build the product side of this and tackling the problem. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about that, thinking delivery. Why do I want to go and build on this mission? Um, mm-hmm. And then a funny thing happened. It was a, uh, this was like nev- October, November 2019. Right? Mm-hmm. It was raining. And I was at home with my girlfriend. And I don't know, do you know those moments when you really want something? You really, I would love this. Mm-hmm. And that moment happened to me and I wanted to go to an Italian restaurant called Osteria mm-hmm. in Santush here in Lisbon. Yeah. And um, I really want it. I don't know why. I really want it. It's like, Italian tapas in a really small place, very cozy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, let's go. And she was like, we're so comfortable here in the couch. It's raining. Uh, let's go. I really want to. I convinced her. We went through the rain. We got there. And the place has like four or five tables. You can sit maybe 10, 12 people. Mm-hmm. And it's not easy to get a table there. Um, and we got one. And as we arrived, there's like 20 couriers, like, Guys with backpacks yeah. taking food. And I was like, okay, fine. They're outside, right? Um, let me squeeze in. We got in. We sat down um, and we ordered. And it took an hour and a half to get our food in a restaurant that has five tables and 12 people. Yeah. And we looked at the kitchen. I looked at the kitchen. And it was like every minute food was coming out. So it's like, it's not a problem with the kitchen. They're producing food. The yeah. thing is, the food was going to the uh, queries, the guys with the backpacks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said... They were not prioritizing the wow. the experience in the restaurant. Right? So I was like, okay, I came to the restaurant to have the experience that the owner of Osteria wanted to build for the people going mm-hmm. there. Um, and I was having a worse experience than the people that decided to stay home in the couch um, mm-hmm. as it was raining. And even they, like, I bet with every single person that if they could choose about eating Osteria's food in a, uh, like a Tupperware or like a backpack, mm-hmm. um, or there, they would choose there. So even they were having the best experience. No. So no one was actually enjoying this. And I was like, wow, like I came here and I'm having a worse experience. And I went through the effort of coming here. And that's what kind of knocked on me and said, 
I want to solve this problem, not because I love delivery or delivering food or, or ordering food, but because I love going to a restaurant. That's where you create yeah. memories. That's where you go with friends or girlfriends or family. And that's where yeah, you I mean, remember. Personal motivation exactly. for this mission is to make the restaurants exactly. a better place. Exactly. And the, the initial mission of Kitsch was, okay, out of the food industry going into delivery, the problem we want to solve first is capacity. It was actually the Osteria problem, which is like, I have a small kitchen, but I'm, and I have a lot of demands on delivery mm -hmm. that I'm not being able to give experience to the, the people going to the restaurant. So I want to have a different kitchen, which is where I'm going to cook the food for delivery. I take it out of my main establishment mm -hmm. and they cook it there, ideally in a place where I'm going to pay less rent. Uh, yeah. very design focused in delivery. So the experience of like cooking and velocity of delivering is even going to be better and yeah. the experience of the people going to the restaurant is great and i can focus on giving them this um so that was our initial um focus and then That's we built this um yeah. and then uh it was working really well we got our kitchens full my mm -hmm. team built the entire software for the kitchens like making it as automated as possible. It was also beautiful. like fixing the timings. And exactly, sure exactly. Just yeah. the, the promise was like, you're going to get food faster. And for the restaurants is like, you're going to be able to be get better economics, take the delivery out of your main restaurant. Yeah. For those who couldn't even do, we had a client called Boabao, which mm -hmm. is my favorite restaurant in Lisbon. And they wouldn't even do delivery because their kitchen, their restaurant was full. So mm -hmm. they wouldn't have the capacity. So yeah. they didn't make the decision like Osteria was like sacrificing a bit of their rest. They said like, no, we're not going to delivery. We have enough of a business. We yeah. said, you got to blow, you're going to blow up uh, mm -hmm. if you do delivery. People love you. Um, and we got them as clients. And so that was it. But problem, which is kind of uh, chapter number two of Kitsch, mm -hmm. which is we launched our kitchens and product on March 13th on a Friday. That was the exact same day that our prime minister said next week we can close up because of coronavirus, right? Mm -hmm. um, and funny thing happened. Our problem capacity suddenly was no longer a problem because every single okay, restaurant was empty. So suddenly they are all virtual kitchens. Mm. They don't need our kitchens. And yeah. we're like panic mode because we've been working okay, for last seems, month. I actually, I haven't thought about it. I mean, yeah. I've thought about the the problem kitchen about and the I good was like, parts. okay that will be great because yeah. everyone is ordering now yeah, exactly except our that. product was useless yeah. so that put us in like how did you manage that yeah so what we did was we realized yeah every restaurant will now be at our kitchen and if we believe that we're building a product software technology that makes our kitchens better for delivery than any other restaurant then we thought They're going to have the same problems we're trying to solve. So what we need to do is take our product and put it in their restaurants and help them be successful in a transition in a moment where they're not ready, mm -hmm. where they are forced to accelerate being ready because suddenly it's like in a week or two, you got to be ready because the only way you're going to make money and pay salaries is if you do delivery because there's no eating yeah. out. So we kind of pivoted without actually pivoting the product. We pivoted distribution and mm -hmm. where we actually put the product. So suddenly, out of expanding kitchens and, and building technology for the kitchens, we start building technology for our partners, for the restaurants, and started growing. Okay. And then we start seeing that they're really enjoying. They, they said, like, wow, this is really helping us. This is helping us uh, manage the chaos, uh, managing a new scenario of delivery first instead of delivery as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it, it made a big difference. And Kitch today 
continues on this mission of helping every single restaurant becoming great at handling delivery their own way because we believe in the power of giving the right tools for restaurants to do what they do best. Uh, mm -hmm. Usually what I say is our vision from the product team side is uh, creating this one-stop shop, this technology, this product that helps restaurants not care about it, care about what they do best, which is great food or expanding their business or betting on their brand, right? Mm -hmm. We take care of the heavy lifting of dealing with the technology that's required for you to deliver food to João, who's like, hey, I don't know how many miles away mm -hmm. or kilometers away from your restaurant. Um, and that's, that's Kitsch. That's building products and experiences that help these restaurants continue to grow in the online space. Great. All right. So you, you joined this, this company and you're now, uh, growing it a lot. I know a concept that, uh, you're also familiar with, which is the, the tour of duty. So it comes from the, American Marine, something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. um, and basically, it's uh, your personal mission on a, on a company. Mm -hmm. And once you achieve it, quote unquote, you're done mm -hmm. with, the, with that challenge, right? Yeah. Uh, what is your tour of duty there at Kitsch? So the, the tour of duty concept that was uh, adapted, I think the first time I heard it adapted to the tech space was by Reid Hoffman, uh, founder of LinkedIn. And I think it's 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 a great concept, and I I wish everyone understood it because at any given moment in time, every single person should have a tour of duty, which is I have a mission, I have an objective, I'm going through my mission, and as I finish my tour of duty, which I should have defined, mm -hmm. that is the moment where I reflect, and I reflect over is. This role I'm in, still the role that makes sense for me. Is the company I'm in still the company that makes sense for me? Are the challenges that I'm working on still the challenges that make sense for me? Mm -hmm. And that moment will always exist. And that's the moment where you decide, I'm going to renew my tour of duty. I'm going to go for another tour of duty, maybe yeah. an extension. Or mm -hmm. I'm going to look for a new tour of duty. Yeah. Right? I think that is a really important concept to understand. Because then you're focused. You're not second guessing. You're not saying, ah, oh, bad decision or a great decision. You're focused. At Kitsch, I've been through a lot of tour of duties, but it always felt like day one of the overall tour of duty, which is to mm -hmm. make Kitsch successful. Um, I went through a tour of duty, which was I kind of build the product engineering and design team because I was mm -hmm. alone with Hui, Nuno, and Eric. Um, they had their areas. I had to build this. Then I went through a second tour of duty, which is we got to build the first product and put it out. Uh, then I went through a third tour of duty, which is we got to pivot this and we got to build this in a way that scales and, and works for the business. And then mm -hmm. I went through another tour of duty, which is we got to scale the team because this is actually working. So we have the budget, we raised money. Now we have the power, the fuel to build a team. Mm -hmm. And then I went through another tour of duty, one that happened late last year, which is so we have these this company called Glovo, which is an amazing company that I admire deeply for multiple reasons, how they grew their culture, the fact that they were built out of Spain into mm -hmm. a really big unicorn uh, with an amazing product that's pretty inspiring. Um, mm -hmm. And this tour of duty of they're interested working with us, partnering with us, acquiring us. And 
driving that acquisition and making sure it's an, a successful acquisition for us and for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that tour of duty is by far not over. I think it's still day one. I think it's first hour of day one. <laughs> um, and I think this tour is about one proving to Glovo that they did a really good choice. They made a really good decision mm-hmm. of, of partnering with Kitsch. Two is using all those resources, all the knowledge that we can get and drink from Glovo's amazing talent and applying it to our own very scrappy, very small company. Um, three, accelerating the vision of Kitsch and our mm-hmm. mission of making every single restaurant amazing at delivery their own way. Um, number four, making my team and the teams my teams interact with successful, understand that this setup our partnership with Glovo is helping them become even more successful if it hasn't, if, if it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and number five is using this responsibility and the resources that are being trusted to Kitsch to explore, to innovate, to bring better products, not only to our customers, but to the customers that will eventually become partners of Kitsch. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a pretty massive tour of duty at Kitsch. I think mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's an amazing mission. As I said, I, I'm doing this because I love restaurants. I love going out for dinner or lunch. I love spending time with friends and family and I want to see them successful. Yeah. I, I really want. And if delivery helps them build their business, expanding them, embedding, investing in their experience, then I'm going to benefit from that. And I think there's a lot of people that think like me that will benefit from us helping successful the restaurants becoming successful. So mm-hmm. That's how I think. Great. And all of those seem super interesting that we could have a whole conversation yeah. about each one of them. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, let, let's save it to, to yeah. another episode. Yeah. Let's. <laughs> um, now I'd like to talk a bit about the one month PM. Yeah. Um, it was my, let's say, first academic experience mm-hmm. uh, in product management. Um, and it's a great opportunity for junior or aspiring PMs to mm-hmm. have a better understanding of key frameworks, also to connect with, with fellow product people. Mm-hmm. How did that idea come to life? So first of all, I appreciate, I, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, so how did this come up? Um, so I think when I think about my personal mission, I go back to that part that I talked about loving to look at problems and going through the variables and trying to build solutions, to solve the problems, right? That's mm-hmm. my own process. And then as I went through my career in product, I realized that is the product process. That's how you build product. So I realized, huh? So if people know about the product process, maybe they can apply it and solve many more problems, right? Yeah. And as I realizing, as I went, as I was growing through my product career and I got the opportunity of managing people, of coaching, mentoring, um, but also being exposed to people that were better at mentoring me and coaching me and learning from those two cycles, mm-hmm. I realized, wow, if I get to bring the product knowledge and process to more people, they get to solve their problems and more problems. So if I scale this in some sense or way, then I'll get more people building better products to solve more problems. And you can actually eventually move the world to a better place. Because mm-hmm. in the end of the day, every single person is only looking to become a bit happier, right? And you become a bit happier, the better you solve your problems. And I, mm-hmm. I can say that 
humans are very resourceful at solving problems. Most mm-hmm. problems are just not solved in a very efficient way. That's why yeah. there's always new companies, so new ways of doing it. Would you say your motivation is more to teach people how to solve problems in general more than to yes. uh, make new product yeah, managers? Yeah, definitely. I just believe that the best way to solve problems mm-hmm. is through building better products. Yeah. Because technology scales. Technology makes mm-hmm. it more affordable, more accessible, more inclusive uh, for anyone to solve their problems and other people's problems, right? So I thought, okay, I can do this in multiple ways. Same approach, like I have opportunities and I have a solution tree, yeah. right? Um, there's many ways of doing this. I can, I can go to a big company and have a big team and manage a lot of people. Yeah. That's true. I can scale my own team. I can build my own company or maybe... I could turn my knowledge and what I've been through in a course that people can just join, learn my own approach, maybe mm-hmm. take some cues, maybe take some frameworks some theories and apply to their own realities. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if you abstract this and say like, oh, this is just me showing you how I deal with problems, that's not like a great positioning, right? Mm-hmm. But product management is getting hot. It's yeah. getting traction. People are... Uh, are enjoying what the role looks like um Mm -hmm. so maybe i can turn this into a product management course but it's just the disguise of like a process to solve problems um and then i start designing it and thinking okay um i think this would be really cool but it's really important to take two things into consideration one i need to enjoy it it needs to be something that i love to do so i need to design both a course curriculum or approach Mm -hmm. that i really believe and think if i was taught this, I would take value out of it. And number two, I need to understand what is market fitness for my potential customers. That led me to think, okay, this needs to be affordable, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it needs to be uh, valuable enough for me to want to do it. Uh, I need to cover my costs, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it needs to be really affordable for people because I wanted to make it inclusive. If I believe that I can teach as many people as possible my approach which isn't the only approach by the way is my approach um then i need to put it in front of as many people as i can two it needs to fit their lives because people are busy and if if something disrupts your core uh problems or core approaches to your life then you're not gonna dedicate time to it so Mm -hmm. it needs to fit people's lives Number three, it needs to be as realistic as possible. It needs to be uh, backed by real examples. It needs to be visual. It needs to be clear. Uh, and it needs to be delivered in a way that you can take that, abstract it, kind of the first principles I mentioned, mm-hmm. and apply it to your life. It needs not to be prescriptive. Um, and then ideally, it needs to bridge the gap between theory and the real world. Uh, and that's why I have guests coming on. That's why mm-hmm. I create challenges that you can use it and apply it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's kind of how One Month PM uh, was built. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to launch this. It's going to be like live stream. We're all at home. This was like 2020, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, August. And I was like, this is going to take a while. Like this pandemic is not going to be over anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at all the other pandemics, like they all take between one and four years. So it's like, yeah. maybe we can do this in under a year, but still, we're still only three months in. So it's still mm-hmm. going to take at least nine months. So I can run one of these. So yeah. I started like building it and thought, okay, I'm going to test this out. Uh, my target was like 15 people, one program in January 21. Mm-hmm. I'm going to post this online just for my LinkedIn and see what happens. 
And in and then all of a sudden it went crazy. <laughs> yeah, like twenty four hours. Not twenty four. I don't think it was even twenty four hours because like I post this on an afternoon and like by like six hours later I had like seventy people enrolled. And I was like, wow, I had like fifteen as a target. I have seventy, so crazy. I'm gonna just gonna open up three more months and just gonna do for the seventy, and that's fine. Uh, I'm assuming not all of them are gonna pay. Maybe. I don't know, 70% pay, so I get 50 mm-hmm. people out of this, 50 people, 15 each program, fine. Make three months, that's cool. Yeah. Um, and then as the days went through, more mm-hmm. people, 100, 150, 200 people, 250. It's like after a, like two weeks, I had 250 people. I was like, yeah. I don't even have a, like, I don't even know if I have time to do this. Um, and then it just kept building uh, yeah. and it kept growing. Nice. Yeah. Also, your popularity grew a lot with it. I mean, you're already known let's say in the portuguese startup and product ecosystems but with one month pm and with your newsletter also i don't know if you mm-hmm. if you had it before or it was more or less I at the same time wrote occasionally mm-hmm. now yeah. i wrote a bit more I, I mean with those kind of things you became kind of a influencer in the product space what opportunities has this acknowledgement brought you uh i think First of all, appreciate and also maybe that. downsides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So appreciate the words. Um, I mean, in the end of the day, I hope that whatever influence I have is because of the value I created through one month PM or through the management I do on a daily basis or through the people that got my advice that was useful for them. I hope that they take value out of that rather mm-hmm. than just reading stuff. Um, yeah. I hope it's valuable. Uh, I think the good part is, well, one month PM grew. I have pretty large, like 1,500 people in the waiting list, which is great because then my reach allows these people to know the program and want to join. And hopefully, if I believe mm-hmm. the program is impactful for them, then I'm going to be building product managers into the world. I think that's pretty mm-hmm. exciting. I think hiring-wise for Kitsch, for for the companies I advise with, I think that also helped because suddenly um, I get to convince people to join these companies because mm-hmm. they believe in my vision or my knowledge on the things I've done. I think that yeah. was also a really positive one. Um, and and the opportunities, like I think being able to work now with Chilling, which is uh, for me the best venture capital firm here in Lisbon and uh, a growing company firm in, in Europe, I think it's going to show a lot of results in the coming years. Um, I think the opportunity of helping them and helping their portfolio companies also came a bit out of that, though I worked at Uniplaces, which was the first investment of Schilling. So mm-hmm. it's not just this. Um, I think, yeah, I think, I don't know. I think being able to do more with Catholica, launching mm-hmm. executive programs uh, there beyond my own master's degree, mm-hmm. I think it's another one. And then it's about meeting people. It's meeting people like you. It's meeting people that are building the next few big companies. Hopefully, I'll be able to invest, invest via shilling, Mm -hmm. uh, make these partners successful as well, and hopefully the founders successful. And if they get to run their teams on my programs and help them tackle problems better, then it's kind of a loop, a win-win for maybe hopefully everyone. I think that's kind of it. Great. I mean, those are great insights. Um, I mean, we are a bit... Out of time, so I'll try to wrap it up just with some some final questions, more about your personal life, about mm-hmm. your hobbies. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of things do you do on your free time? I mean, first, how do you have free time exactly? <laughs> <laughs> That's the first uh, thing. Look, I think um, 
I don't think majority of people understand that everyone has time mm-hmm. for not for everything, but for the things you prioritize. Right? Yeah. When people say, oh, I'd love to do this, but I don't have time. Oh, you have time. You're just prioritizing other things that are not this. Yeah. If you prioritize this over other things, then you have time. Yeah. You won't have time for those things, but you have time for that thing. It's just mm-hmm. not as important for you now as the other things. Now, there are for things sure. that you can't deprioritize. If you're a father or a mother, you got to take care of your kids. You got to give back to them or you got to feed them. Mm-hmm. Or if you have to take care of your own parents, you got to dedicate time for that. There are a few things and there are many more, even like yourself. Yeah. Like, there are many more. You can't deprioritize. But that generally doesn't occupy 100% of your waking time, mm-hmm. right? So the other parts that aren't like fixed priorities, that means you're prioritizing those over the other ones that you could be doing. Yeah. In my case, what I simply do is I prioritize my ability to do all of these work at Kitsch, do one month PM, Kitsch, Schilling, Catholica, Advisory. All, I just prioritize doing this over maybe a few other things that I could do, maybe chilling, uh, watching Netflix, whatnot. Yeah, yeah. I still do those. And this mm-hmm. is like one of the first things I was going to say is like, I love spending time with my girlfriend, my dog. I have a baby dog, which uh, is, How is old? Uh, eight months. It's an English nice. bulldog, very fat. Um, so I think one of the first things is spending time with him. Um, and she helps me a lot, like, with my own ventures and helping through mm-hmm. uh, either new ideas or I'm going through problems or challenges and she gives uh, her own inputs. And I'm super lucky that she allows to use our free time to discuss these. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think that part is really cool. Um, and I'd say like, just to kind of wrap up the, how do I have time? I think it's all about prioritizing, yeah. right? Yeah. The, the second part is where do I also spend time? Like I, I love surfing. So I surf mm-hmm. and I think, one of the best things is about surfing is the fact that you don't have technology around you. So you actually mm-hmm. get to be at peace with your own thoughts and you get to think. And one of the things I do when surfing is I prioritize choosing what to think. Sometimes I just go with the flow and like whatever my mind is a bit of meditation, right? Mm-hmm. But other times I really prioritize. I want to think about this and I use surfing for that. Like I have a challenge at work or at home or whatever i go like oh surfing i know i'll have the time to think because i have literally nothing else to do other than wait for a wave or surfing a wave and Mm -hmm. thinking right so i think that's another thing the third thing is i'm obsessed about consuming stuff that will make me a better version of myself right Mm -hmm. and i use every single time and moment that i get to consume that whether Mm -hmm. if i'm going at in the car I'm listening to podcasts. I get, I, I make sure that I read every night. Mm-hmm. So I'm averaging maybe what, 15 books a year, uh, yeah. because I prioritize that. Um, I get to read articles and listen to the articles as I commute or as I walk the dog or, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I, it's, it's, I'm prioritizing that I love it yeah. for people who don't love doing they, they love listening to music or they love nothing like that and just being uh, watching the sky that's fine mm-hmm. i love doing that but i prioritize that because i know it'll build myself into a better version of myself which then impacts the people i manage my peers yeah. the founders yeah. of my company my own companies so great. i think that's where i spend the time great that connects a lot to my final questions mm-hmm. uh, just to wrap it up yeah. what would be your what are your three favorite books okay favorite 
books, three favorite books, might be a uh, few more than three. Um, so a favorite product book, I would say... Um, Drum roll. I don't know. I learned a lot from different books. Like I love Teresa Torres Continuous Discovery Habits. Yeah. Uh, I think it's it's a great book. That's the book. one I'm reading now. Actually. It's a great yeah. book. Uh, it teaches you a lot about opportunity trees and how to deconstruct how you tackle problems. Um, inspired by Marty Kagan is is a basis of, of product management. Um, so as you go through your career, you understand this a lot more nuanced. What he says. Um, Melissa Berry's Escaping the Bell Trap is also a great product book. Um, that I always recommend people to read. Um, mm-hmm. so I'd say like, yeah, combination of these kind of cover the product side. Okay. Um, so that's one a compilation. Yeah. Of yeah, these yeah, three. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's probably going to be always a compilation. Of <laughs> you. I think like a book that inspired me into building technology. And I love this book is ready player one. I think ready that's a fictional one. book. Mm-hmm. That, uh, ready player one is magical. Um, Ready Player Two is good as well, the second uh, one, but the first one is just amazing. Um, a, an amazing book for people who want to read about bios, for example, biographies, uh, especially around tech. Mm-hmm. A few recommendations there. Hatching Twitter is beautiful. It's crazy. I hope they make a movie out of that because it's about mm-hmm. the creation of Twitter. Um, I think it's amazing. Losing My Virginity by Richard Branson is an amazing book about building a company and everything you got to go. About entrepreneurship, I really recommend it. It's probably one of my favorite books ever. It's The Hard Things About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz, one of the partners from Andreessen Horowitz. Mm -hmm. And it's a beautiful uh, story about him building their company um, and and, and IPOing and selling and like the hard thing about hard things about building companies. Mm -hmm. I think it's it's a great great book. Um, Yeah, I would say, I mean, then there's a lot of books around psychology like thinking fast and slow i think it's a tough book but really teaches you um a lot i'm finishing now build by tony faddle the inventor of ipod and one of the leaders Mm -hmm. of the iphone i think it's a great book as well i loved amp it up by frank slutman uh ceo of um snowflake i think it's a very aggressive operational like book focused on execution like executing at top Mm -hmm. level um let's say that's yeah those are my go-to's already a big list yeah it's a big list people. i love reading i mean mm-hmm. i think uh, a lot of people yes. I, I i said this on my Do you own. have your your good reads as public i don't i i no. can i can put it public um, so. yeah I'll, I'll make that happen i'll make my my good reads <laughs> nice. public um but i was i was talking about this on my own program one month pm um and one thing that i don't think people understand is like we get used to reading online content like tweets mm-hmm. or medium articles or posts on linkedin whatever um but there's a big difference between that and books. It's called an editor. An editor makes the author go through a process of like, is my approach, my thesis, my research method the right one? Is the narrative a, a narrative that delivers on impact on a way that people understand the storyline? Um, and mm-hmm. an editor also pushes you to write about things that make sense for the world. In yeah. the internet, there's no editing. There's no editor doing that. So you're consuming mm-hmm. content that has technically not been vetted. Maybe you can yeah, choose to follow someone that you believe it's an expert in an area, mm-hmm. and that's going to be better. But yeah. a lot of times you're reading stuff that you don't even know who wrote it. Do you know if it's yeah, the right person? Sure. So I really recommend people to write reading as many books. I think it's the biggest underrated 
advantage that mm-hmm. people who read a lot will have over basically the rest of the world. If you yeah. read more than uh, three or four books a year, you're already maybe in the top 1% of people reading, and mm-hmm. that will make a big difference in your own career. Yeah. Great advice there. Um, then go to the let's go to the three favorite podcasts. Podcasts. Uh, okay. I'm addicted. Besides Product Weekend slash Productized. <laughs> I think it's going to become very easily <laughs> one of my top, of course. Um, I am addicted to All In, which is by four guys known tech scene. Uh, Jason Calacanis, Chamath Palihapitiya, uh, Jason Fried, and David Sachs. Um, they're pretty famous. They're pretty well known by companies they launch or their investment funds. And they have an amazing podcast comes out weekly around politics, tech, um, and poker. That's how they set it up. They talk more about politics and tech than anything else. Uh, beautiful. Um, I'm addicted to Pivot by Scott Galloway and Kara Swisher. Love their podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, is great and i'm loving the the new podcast by lenny richitsky on on product management yeah, yeah. called lenny's podcast mm-hmm. uh a few episodes are magical episode with trace doshi and and gokul rajaram and now um the 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 new episode is like vp of product at coinbase beautiful products i think it's well done um super insightful so i'd say mm-hmm. those three great And last but not least, your three favorite cities. Cities, okay. Number one is Lisbon for sure. Uh, people should just come here. It's, yeah, yeah. it's the best place to be. Um, New York, maybe. Uh, yeah. I was just there a couple of weeks ago. I think it's uh, the intensity, the size, uh, but at the same time, how easy it is to just walk through it. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely. Um, and Maybe not a, a city, but, well, loved Singapore. Singapore is, Singapore. is incredible, mm-hmm. but I want to highlight like different because a city already touched on Singapore and New York are kind of different versions of the same. Mm-hmm. Um, gonna highlight maybe a country, Iceland, which is, uh, awesome. amazing. Like if you get to go and immerse different yourself, from everything, right? 100% is like mm-hmm. nature, get tech out of the way and just enjoy that. I'd say like, yeah, that's my recommendation. Great. Thank you, Andre. Uh, just to finish, where can people find you online? Yeah, I mean, LinkedIn is where I am the most active. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's the European version of Twitter is LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, so you can find me there. Just uh, type my name, Andre Albuquerque. Um, and I write there. You can also uh, find my content on andrealbuquerque.com. Um, though I, I, it's kind of the same articles I post on LinkedIn. You can mm-hmm. follow on both sides if the algorithm doesn't expose me to you. Um mm-hmm. So you never miss uh, one of the things I write. Um, and that's kind of it. Uh, just connect with me or follow and, and send yeah. me a, a message. I try to answer to everyone. It's not easy. but mm-hmm. uh, And join one month PM. If you join one month PM in my program, you get to spend literally one month on my <laughs> own course. And yeah. you get to ask me questions if you want and connect. Perfect. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Appreciate it. And good luck with... Product Weekend uh, and the podcast and all the events that are coming. Yeah, thank you.